Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Mr. President. Yes, what is it? An asteroid, sir. The size of Texas. It's headed right at us. Then let's shoot a bomb at it. That's not an option, Mr. President. Yeah, it is. Totally shoot a bomb at it. That would not be enough, sir. Then let's shoot all our bombs at it, right? We're gonna die anyway. We might as well have some fun. Mr. President, I- I'm not sure you're grasping this. Okay, well, well, somebody turn that music off. It's freaking me out. There is one person who might be able to help. Then go get him. It's not a him, sir. Okay. Big boned man, young and of my dream. Struggles to get the live bird out of his throat. That sucks. Big boned man, young and of my dream. Struggles to get the live bird out of his throat. Excuse me, Dr. Wolf. Yeah, can you just give me a second? I'm trying to set this poem to music. This is kind of an emergency. Kelly Clarkson is pregnant? I'm not sure about that, Doctor, but a deadly asteroid is on a collision course with Earth. I don't do that stuff anymore. You're needed, Dr. Wolf. I'm out, okay? I'm out of that game. Uh, Technically speaking, there's never been anything like this. So I don't really see how you can say you don't do that stuff anymore and just go sailing away. Wait, hold on a second. What you just said was... Totally intense. I'll do it. But first I'm going to need that disaster movie music turned back on. And then I'm going to need a ton of canvas. And the nine best sailors in the America's Cup, we're going to fly up there, land on the asteroid, put a sail and rudder on it, and go tacking off in some other direction. I cannot believe how awesome my mind is. While I'm doing that, here's a radio show about how to plan a parade from somebody who saves the Earth from an asteroid. And now he believes asteroids can be treated with Preparation A, Colin McEnroe. Actually, this show is not about how to plan a parade for the person who saves us from the asteroid. It's about the actual possibility of an asteroid strike. And we are going to look at it through a a series of different lenses. Uh, We're going to look at it through a scientific lens. We're going to look at at it also through a strategic uh, lens. But we're also going to look at it through the lens of fiction. And I I will confess that the reason that we're doing this show is partly because I got hooked on these books uh, called The Last Policeman Trilogy. Uh, There are two of them out so far, The Last Policeman and Countdown City. Each of them imagines the scenario in which an asteroid, which we did not have time to anticipate is now coming towards Earth. The Earth has um, months and months and months to to prepare itself for the, for the end of the human race as this asteroid comes. And so the the tension in the books is the, the all the tension of this one young man who um, has realized his dream of becoming a police detective, only to find out that most people now consider his work fairly irrelevant. Uh, but he doesn't. Uh, he wants to still. He feels there's still an obligation to solve crimes and to take people's problems uh, seriously. The books are terrific, uh, but they all 
also clearly are the work of somebody who really gamed this out considerably, who gave a lot of thought to this, uh, a lot of thought to what would happen if, in fact, an asteroid like this were coming towards Earth. So uh, he's going to kind of kind of anchor our discussion. We're also going to be talking as we go along with uh, Dr. H.J. Malash. Uh, he's a geophysicist and a professor of Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Sciences at Purdue University, and Robert Perlman, an American space historian and founder and editor of Collect Space, a website with news and information about space exploration history. But uh, as I say, anchoring things will be Ben Winters. He's the author of seven novels, including The Last Policeman Trilogy, which I just talked about. It's an award-winning uh, series. And uh, he's with us now uh, from a radio station in Indiana, where he lives. Uh, First of all, Ben Winters, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. And uh, how's the, I mean, the thing that I'm the most concerned about, actually, is that I'm taking up an hour of your time when what I really need you to do is write the third book. Uh, so how's that coming? <laughs> it's, it's, it's coming fine. Thank right. you. Did it's you, uh, it's you, hard work, so I'm happy to have the break. Not to put a lot of pressure on you, but you did work on it today, right? Because I need this book. I need it to come fairly soon. Yeah, no, I did. I worked on it all morning, and then I came here to do this, and I will work on it all afternoon. So I appreciate it. Okay, that makes me feel better. Um, So (laughs) let's sort of begin with with the the premise of this book, as I say. Big big asteroids coming, nothing really uh, as far as anybody knows, although there are various sort of counter theories circulating around. But officially speaking, not much that can be done about it. Uh, The the, uh, scientist comes on TV to to tell the world. He gets interviewed by Scott Pelley, and Scott Pelley says— what are our options? And he, the scientist bursts into tears and says, there are no options. Um, you, you really did think this out. Um, talk a little bit about the research you did getting into these novels. Sure. Well, I did a, a quite a bit, as, as you think, I, th- I think as you figured out, I, I did a lot of research. I wanted to make sure that if I was going to play this game, that I was playing it sort of at the top of my intelligence and as realistically as possible, because that would be the fun of it. Um, and so I did, well, you know, I talked to, just for starters, to a... Um, a guy who works at the Harvard-Smithsonian, I think it's called the Minor Planet Center in Cambridge, Massachusetts. His name is Dr. Timothy Sparr, who um, he's one of the, the guys who watches the sky, basically. His, uh, among his jobs is to uh, sort of maintain this database of all of the uh, uh, potential Earth crossers, uh, that is, um, large objects that might impact Earth. So I basically went to him and I said, look, I've got this idea for a book. Can you uh, give me you know, basically Asteroids 101? And he really did. He sat me down and we talked for hours um, over a couple of visits and he he walked me through the science. Um, Now, one of the first things he said was, well, your premise is extremely unlikely. Mm -hmm. When I said, well, yes, I understand that. But he did say, and this was one of my favorite moments as a a writer so far uh, in terms of research, I described to him the scenario, which was a a massively large object with a very short lead time. in other words, you know, there are only uh, really when, when humanity discovers this object in my book, there's about a year or uh, I think 14 months before impact. And he sort of thought about it for a second. He goes, I can get you your asteroid. <laughs> and I was like, that's great. Let's do it. So there is, there is actually one, a much, much smaller one that came close but not that close that I ended up sort of modeling my asteroid on. So I have the, you know, the sort of flight path um, and I track it through the book of where it was, when and how close. Um, anyway. Well, there, and there is, and I think you sort of blundered into this a little bit. There's sort of a politics to all this because uh, there are a lot of people thinking about asteroids and tracking asteroids, a lot of people even thinking about the potential for an asteroid strike. But then they don't sort of always agree about what to do about this. And you know, so you, for fictional and dramatic purposes, want the biggest, most catastrophic asteroid that you can possibly have. But uh, 
among the people who think about all this stuff are several former astronauts. And I think it has something to do with the fact they get up in space. They probably <laughs> see a lot of stuff whizzing around. They look down at this little blue egg that looks like it could break pretty easily. And they think, wow, we should be more worried about this than we actually are. So um, one of the things they've done is found, uh, and we'll talk about this a couple of times today, the B612 Foundation. Yeah. And, and, and this is a special foundation that's all about asteroid strikes. But one of the things that they're concerned about, and we're specifically uh, Rusty Schweikert and, and Ed Liu, uh, former astronauts are, are very concerned about this, is they think we're not paying enough attention to the smaller astro- asteroids, like the one that recently struck uh, Russia, right. which was not a huge one, right? Yeah, but, well, it, it, it's only not huge you know, given the proportions of asteroids. Right. You know what I mean? Based on most objects that you and I will ever look at in our lives, it was huge. The The thing is that compared to this, for example, the asteroid that, that struck that we, we think killed the dinosaurs, it was tiny. Mm-hmm. I actually spoke to Rusty Schweikert. I mean, if you read the acknowledgments of right. The Last Policeman, I, I recount this conversation because he did. He said to me, I explained my premise to him, and he said he sort of he said, I beg of you, don't write this book. He said, write a book about um, one of the, the much more likely event of a smaller, a non-civilization ending, but still catastrophic asteroid, because that is a much more important sort of alarm bell to be ringing to people. Uh, and I sort of politely said, you know, I, I totally understand, uh, but that's that would sort of destroy my premise. But I, I get what you're saying, uh, because it, it is what B612 is trying to do. And what a lot of other people are trying to do is say, look, we, we have to figure out how to establish some sort of global plan here of what, our, what, what we're going to do when inevitably we discover something that isn't necessarily the size of the one that killed the dinosaurs, probably won't be that big, but could still do some serious damage uh, were it to make landfall. You know, as we go along here, let me just sort of uh, prep people a little bit for where we're going about this. We're going to talk a little bit here in this first segment, too, a little more about the reality uh, of these asteroids and, and of the possibility of asteroid strikes. And in the second segment of our show, we'll also talk a little bit about re- contemplated remedies, the things that either could or could not be done in the event that something like this was coming towards us. And we had a little bit of lead time or maybe a lot of lead time. Uh, what what could we actually do about it? Um, towards the end of the show, also, we're going to spend some more time with Ben just sort of talking about the, the the human consequences of this and what happens, what might happen in a situation where a lot of people, maybe all people, were fairly persuaded that they had no hope that, uh, that in yeah. fact, something like this was coming. So that'll be uh, towards the end of the show. That'll, be, that'll give everybody something to really look forward to, to uh, total hopelessness. As we go along here, if you have your own questions, and we do have various experts coming on here, give us a call, 860-275-7266. Eight, assuming you haven't just turned off your radio in stark terror, tweet us and be tweeted at, uh, at WNPR Colin. So, um, you know, one of the things that I just sort of discovered reading your books and then kind of reading the attendant science coverage, and there's just been a lot of stuff over the last 12 months. I mean, you couldn't have timed this subject better, Ben Winters. There's, you know, you've had an actual <laughs> asteroid strike in Russia. You've had, you know, a, a lot of worrying about other uh, other asteroid strikes, new reports from scientists estimating that yeah. maybe this kind of thing is going to happen more often. You've got an actual UN involvement in it now, setting up sort of a, some kind of a UN warning system. Um, as yeah. you sort through it all, and it's certainly possible, uh, you know, on any given day to read a story that kind of contradicts some of the conclusions that you read about in the on the previous day. I don't know how how worried are you about this at this point? Well, it's hard to 
And this is sort of the problem in terms of the efforts of, of groups like B612. It's hard to get super worried about it on a day-to-day basis because although the consequences would be so catastrophic, the, the odds are so low. Even given new research, even given our understanding, our evolving understanding of, of where the asteroids are and how big they are, the, the odds of this event occurring remain compared to the odds of other kinds of terrible things that could happen in the world uh, quite low. And it actually, this presents, um, it's one of the things I sort of get into in the books, it presents a sort of a question for policymakers and for people who do deep thinking about the way that the resources of a country or a planet should be allocated. How seriously do you worry about things that, although they probably won't happen, if they do happen, will be super dangerous and bad, as opposed to things that have a, a much greater chance of happening, but if they do happen, won't, will be bad, but not as bad. How do you weigh these things? So... Beside reading a lot about asteroids and talking a lot of people about asteroids, I also did some work just thinking about the question of probability and odds making and how you deal with that as a society. So for me personally, I don't wake up every day going, oh, today might be the day. You know, it's, it's coming. Mm-hmm. Um, but it did make me sort of take a step back and look at, I guess, the way that we think about trouble, you know, the way we think about the chance of, of, of any, you know, various kinds of bad things happening. Um, but, you know, what, what are you going to do? you got to live your life. I mean, one of the most recent reports uh, concerns an astronaut that recently passed by uh, our planet, and I think we didn't even know it was coming until we saw it pass. It's coming back in 2032, and, and the number I saw, there was a 1 in 63,000 uh, 63, chance that it would strike Earth, uh, which is a very small chance, although I would prefer a 0 in 63,000 chance, as uh, your narrator keeps pointing out, as Hank Palace tells us all the time. Anytime there's a 1. That's right. <laughs> That's you know, right. The other number can really be big, but there's still that one, which means that there's actually a chance. Right. And as as Mike, and as he points out, or as another character points out, once it's actually happening, in other words, once the event is actually occurring, then the odds of it potentially occurring are moot. You right. know, once an unlikely event, once it actually occurs, it's, it doesn't matter whether it was unlikely or not, it's happening. So we're, if at some point we, we pass that point and it's actually happening, then it won't matter how unlikely it was. It'll If that one in 63,000 chance comes to pass then suddenly it's a one-in-one chance. It is happening. It is real, and we'll just have to deal with it. Well, let's uh, bring another voice into this conversation. As I said, uh, Dr. H.J. Malash uh, is a geophysicist and professor of Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Sciences at Purdue Purdue University. Um, J. Malash, uh, you know, as I was saying before, one reads all kinds of things, you know, in the science section of the New York Times and elsewhere and in in nature uh, and and, and places like that where scientists are saying, well, maybe there's going to be more of these than we thought. There might be uh, a strike uh, the size of the Chelyabinsk uh, space rocks that uh, that hit Russia last year, maybe every decade or two. Uh, we, we know that uh, big asteroids have struck Earth in the past, uh, a, a really big one in 1908. Um, so how, how does the average person sort out all of these reports and, and understand how real, in some of the ways that Ben is talking about, how real the dangers are? Well, I think it's really difficult to grasp as as ben was saying it's really difficult to grasp how to deal with an event that is very very unlikely to happen but will be utterly catastrophic if it were to happen 
And that's been a problem that people thinking about the hazards from asteroids and comets have had to struggle with for many years. I, I personally do not yet have an answer to that. Uh, one can throw statistics around and do computations. Uh, you know, one, one says you're more likely to, to die of a huge asteroid strike than you are in a plane crash. Uh, and as far as the numbers go, that's correct. But uh, what that is counting is that, you know, everybody on Earth dies if there's a big, very, very unlikely um, impact event, and yet, you know, plane crashes do occasionally occur. Uh, so it's, it's really difficult to, to uh, grasp. What's a little bit easier to grasp uh, are the events that uh, happen, for example, at Chelyabinsk, because they're much more common. And uh, we think that, uh, at least in, in those cases, we are more hopeful that we can do something about them. How good are we at um, spotting these things? Now, Chelyabinsk was, I mean, as Ben was saying, compared to most things in the world you'll ever look at, it's a really big asteroid. Compared to most asteroids, it's maybe not so big uh, an asteroid. Uh, but but we, we know that that one did strike. We know that in 1908, they've been very nice about hitting Siberia. Uh, uh, we know that the so-called Tunguska event happened in 1908, a bigger asteroid probably than what hit, hit, hit Chelyabinsk. But, um, Jay, how, how good are we at knowing these things are coming, seeing them out there in outer space? Well, the answer to that question depends upon the size. We're pretty good at spotting big things. Uh, we know of, for example, asteroids that would be utterly catastrophic, like, like Ben's hypothetical asteroid. I actually didn't read the book, and I don't know how big your asteroid was. It's really uh, big. That's a really big one. Yeah. Okay. It's like six kilometers. It's it's preposterously large. Uh, okay. You know, based. It's as large as I could make the science bear. Well, we, we plausibly could be threatened by a known asteroid named Eros, for, uh, asteroid number four three three Eros, which you probably learned about from Tim Spar. Uh, yeah. That's uh, about uh, thirty kilometers long and and ten kilometers in diameter. It's kind of Whew. shaped like a peanut. If that were to impact, that would you'll be bigger than the dinosaur killer. And uh, it would be really catastrophic for anything on the surface of the Earth. Uh, but um, there's not very, well, it's certainly it's not Earth-crossing now. Uh, it does have the potential, unlike most of the other near-Earth objects, of becoming Earth-crossing perhaps in as little as uh, 2 million years. So that, that is not totally ridiculous. On the other hand, we know that we only get hit by something that big every few hundred million years, so that the chances of it happening next year or in your lifetime or even your children's lifetime is very, very low. And we can say that, at, at least as far as your great-grandchildren's -grand lifetime, uh, there's no probability that an asteroid that big will strike. Um, there's been a big campaign, uh, mostly focused in the United States, but now expanding to the rest of the world, to discover uh, what we might call civilization busters, asteroids a kilometer in diameter or so, that while not causing a major extinction, would cause enough disruption, you know, crop failures for a couple of years running, that uh, maybe a large fraction of the human population would die. We, we'd find that uh, pretty inconvenient, and there's been searches going on now for decades. We believe we've found at least 80% of those uh, sort of uh, civilization busters that are crossing the Earth's orbit at the present time, and the searches are now going down to look for still smaller objects. On the other hand, the Chelyabinsk size, which which wasn't really very big, it was, it was about 20 yards across or so, uh, relatively small as far as uh, asteroids go, that we probably would not have detected ahead of time. It came out of the, 
the direction of the sun, and uh, we would have a hard time finding that even with the expanded searches, although it might not be out of the range of possibility, we could eventually do that. Um, yeah, and Ben, uh, you, the asteroid in, in your book, one of the ways that it sort of fools people, and I think Timothy Spar helped you with this, uh, by, is by having a really, really long orbit, right? So that that's, it's hard to see. That's coming. correct. <clears throat> that's correct. I sort of was able to, because as, as Jay pointed out, most of the very large ones have been, we know where they are. Um, but the thing is that asteroids can have a very long elliptical orbit, so that basically my premise is that this particular asteroid has been on such a long journey around the sun that it didn't appear it, when the last time by the time we started looking for asteroids in a serious way at that time it was far enough away that we couldn't see it so that it only became clear to us within the last 18 months um, but as Dr. Spar pointed out and as I think other asteroid scientists will say that that in itself is quite unlikely that there would be an object that is A this large and B uh, had such a long orbit that we couldn't see it until um, until more recently. Um, Jay, um, you know, because of Chelyabinsk, we know that this relatively small kind of asteroid can strike. There probably won't be a lot of warning if there is any warning at all at this point. Um, and are there any things that we could sort of tell people that would be useful on a day on a on a day when a screaming comes across the sky? Uh, to quote Thomas Pynchon, um, uh, it seems like in Russia, a lot of people were just sort of driving in their cars looking at it. It's probably not a really good idea, right? Well, there, there are some things you could indeed do, even if uh, we didn't detect it far enough ahead of time to, say, uh, send uh, a deflection mission out there. And that's just good old-fashioned civil defense. Uh, for example, uh, we know that even smaller asteroids can be detected uh, ahead of time. Uh, in 2008, uh, an impact uh, was actually spotted 19 hours before it hit. Uh, it impacted in Sudan. It was an object that was a lot smaller, in fact, than what hit Chelyabinsk. It, it was spotted uh, kind of by accident, but uh, some subsequent analysis suggests that we maybe could do a better job with uh, upcoming uh, generations of telescopes in finding these things. So the question is, what could you do if you knew 24 hours ahead of time that, say, Chelyabinsk was going to hit? And we could actually do a lot. For example, we'd know where it was going to, to occur, most of the, the injuries in Chelyabinsk occurred because people saw this bright light outside their window, and very curious, they went to the window to look at what happened. Uh, what, what actually occurred is that about a minute later, the shock wave arrived, blew the windows out, and uh, they were then shot through with glass from the windows. We could simply, um, if we identified the area was going to hit, tell people to you know, cover up, and if they see a bright light outside... Don't go near the windows. That would have saved a lot of injuries. Do, do they always hit or do they blow up in the atmosphere? I, at the end of the, the uh, Ben's book, I was, I was a little uncertain uh, about that. What, what happens when an asteroid enters our atmosphere? Well, it, again, depends an awful lot on the size, but something uh, in the range of Chelyabinsk, as it comes into the atmosphere at, at high speed, it uh, runs into the atmosphere almost at that speed, like uh, you know, 20 kilometers per second, like running into a brick wall. And the asteroid, which might be a, a rocky object, uh, which we think the Chelyabinsk object was, uh, begins to break up under the forces of running into the atmosphere. And it really isn't an explosion in the, the, the sense of a, a detonation of a chemical explosion or, or anything like that. It's really a, a very sudden release of energy. As the, the uh, object starts to break up, uh, it releases more energy in the atmosphere. That breaks the 
the fragments into smaller fragments that then release more energy. So there's a, a cascade of energy release that appears to be a detonation from a distance, but it, it isn't really that. Uh, although the, the energy released makes a, a shock wave in the atmosphere as well as the bright light. And it's that shock wave for this kind of event that does the damage on the ground. Um, we're going to go into our next segment and talk a little bit more about uh, plans uh, for deflection or, or you know, how realistic any of that stuff is. But, but while we've got you here, uh, you uh, alluded to um, deflection a little while ago. I mean, how, how hopeful are you that we can figure out ways to, to save ourselves from certain sizes of dangerous asteroids? I, I'm very hopeful that we could do something with the civilization buster size. Uh, I'm pretty confident that uh, with the next generation of telescopes, uh, we can uh, predict even the, the smaller kind of city busters like uh, Chelyabinsk. And that, uh, you know, asteroids, unlike most other hazards like you know, hurricanes or something, asteroids are predictable. And if we only do the right things about finding them in advance, we can, can actually defend ourselves against them. But Nevertheless, keep in mind that, you know, asteroids have hit in the past. They are part of our natural environment, and there is absolutely no doubt we will be hit again in the future. It's not a matter of whether. It's just a matter of when. All right. right that's right. People say to me, is this going to happen? And I say, well, eventually, yeah. I mean, eventually, yeah. <laughs> All right. On that cheery note, we're going to grab a, a break. Thanks again to Dr. H.J. Malosh. Uh, he's a geophysicist and professor of Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Science at Purdue University. We're going to talk about possible solutions to the extent that there are any in the next segment. Imagine an asteroid is coming. We'll talk in this segment about various things that might or might not be done, ways we either should have gotten ready or could get ready uh, right now. Uh, we'll talk about detection. We'll talk about deflection. But, yeah, probably when you think about ways to defeat an asteroid, your mind may jump to, you know, heavy artillery, things like lasers or, or, or Bruce Willis in Armageddon. What is this thing? It's enormous. It's an asteroid, sir. It's the size of Texas, Mr. President. What kind of damage? Total, sir. My God. Nothing would survive, not even bacteria. What do we do? Do we blow this thing up from the inside? You can blow it up from the inside. I don't really know. I, actually, I watched the movie many times. I know exactly what's being uh, said there. Who knows how realistic that is. But um, there are other ideas about how to deal with this. One MIT student is working on a much lower approach, a uh, lower key approach, a less violent approach to preventing an Armageddon-sized uh, asteroid. This is a segment we like to call... One man has seen more than he should. These men have been secretly negotiating a planned Armageddon. Now powered only by his dedication to the truth and his love of science, he prepares to challenge the unknown. It's a global conspiracy with key players, the highest levels of power, reaches into the lives of every man, woman, and child on this planet. Step into the dangerous world of Patrick Scahill. The impossible scenario that we never planned for? Well, we better come up with a plan. Patrick Scahill, the most scientific man in the world. Sung-Wook Peck studies asteroids. He's a graduate student at MIT, and one day, he found himself riding a bike thinking about how we could deflect an asteroid hurtling toward Earth. 
He says cherry blossoms were in bloom on MIT's campus, and he was navigating across a path littered with little balls of fruit. Whenever I ride bicycle on it, he popped up and made my bicycle tire dirty. And then the idea hit him, exploding balls of color. Probably not the first thing that pops to mind when you think about diverting a planet-destroying asteroid, but Peck's idea is brilliant in its simplicity. Here's how it works. A delivery system hovers near an asteroid, peppering its surface with a shower of tiny objects. Peck calls these micro-impacts. Each hit transfers a tiny bit of kinetic energy, progressively diverting an asteroid thousands of miles off its current course. But here's the genius part. Each impact also explodes a blast of white paint powder on the asteroid's surface. White reflects light really well, which means... You can use the pressure of light to slowly push away the asteroid from its original path. That's right, photon impacts. It doesn't get much more micro than that. And Peck says that if an asteroid is detected early enough, say a couple decades before it hits the Earth, these photon impacts could divert an asteroid away from the planet. The white paint also gives trackers on the ground an advantage, making the asteroid appear brighter in the sky. The brighter the object, the easier it is to follow. In 2012, Peck's idea won the Move an Asteroid Technical Paper Competition, which was sponsored by the United Nations Space Generation Advisory Council. He says he's talking with NASA officials about refining the idea, gauging how his white powder would interact with different asteroid materials or with ice. And there's also the pesky problem of dust. When you throw stuff at an asteroid, it kicks up sediment, and that sediment could settle back onto the asteroid's surface, mixing with the white paint. And the color might not be changed if I wanted to. So there's a few kinks to work out. But Peck says he'll continue modeling scenarios on his computer. And in the meantime, I'll hope his theories never come into play. All right, so that's that's one way. That's one possible way. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about this in this segment. As I say, all through the show, we have with us Ben Winters. Uh, he's the author of The Last Policeman Trilogy. Two of the three books are out. They are very addictive. I warn you, if you start them, make sure you have time to finish them because you'll want to. The final book is scheduled for release in the summer of 2014. I don't really think I can wait that long, but I know where Ben lives now. Uh, so uh, so anyway, these are, these are great books, and Ben is going to be talking a little bit about sort of how he started to think because there are a lot of conspiracy theories floating around in these books about what either could be done or what won't be done or what Pakistan wants to do versus what we want to do, all kinds of stuff like this. But first, let's begin with Robert Perlman. He's an American space historian and founder and editor of Collect Space, a website with news and information about space exploration history. Um, Robert Perlman, you know, earlier in the show, uh, Dr. Jay Malash and Ben were, were talking about how uh, when we, we think about asteroids, size is really important. How, how big the asteroid is uh, makes a big difference. Obviously, that's really true. But, but another difference was alluded to in the piece that we just heard which is how much time do you have to get yourself ready? And in that situation, the difference between two decades and three weeks becomes a very important distinction. Maybe you can say something about that, about the whole issue of detecting before you decide about deflecting. Sure, and and thanks for having me on. Um, To put it uh, quite blankly, right now, if we were to find an asteroid, if we were to see an asteroid coming towards us and it was going to be here in the three-week time frame, the likelihood of us being able to do it well the likelihood of us being able to do anything about it would be very very low um, nasa's administrator charlie bolden in testifying before congress actually said that the best advice he would have is pray um, because up to this point we have talked a lot about doing things about asteroid deflection but we haven't really put ideas 
to hardware to actually preparing uh, missions to go out and, and affect any of these things. We haven't tested them. We haven't actually sent any uh, demonstration missions out. And the, the calls to do that are getting louder. Um, but first you have to know where and what to target. And the, the ability for us to search for these Earth-crossing asteroids, these Earth-crossing objects that could pose threats to um, all of humanity or parts of humanity are only in their infantile stages. Um, we have one effort that is underway, led by NASA and others, to uh, track uh, asteroids of a certain size. But what organizations like the B612 Foundation, which is a nonprofit that was specifically formed to uh, search for uh, and, and address the asteroid impact threat, um, have proposed uh, a private spacecraft to go out and 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 catalog these asteroids that of uh, large and small size to that pose a, a threat to to Earth. Although I, I love this, this is from the B612 uh, website, uh, and as we were saying before, this is uh, partly anyway the work of, of two astronauts, uh, former astronauts. Uh, they write, in the first 10 years as a volunteer organization, the focus remained on asteroid deflection research and advocacy. The team develops several deflection concepts, ones that are accepted today as standard techniques to prevent an impact, and, uh, and over the years, the B612 Foundation was instrumental in advancing the scientific thinking on asteroid deflection. But then came the epiphany that you can't deflect an asteroid you don't even know is headed to Earth. You can't stop what you can't see, so blah, blah, blah. They got really interested in detection. It seemed like the epiphany probably should have come a little bit sooner. Uh, but um, <laughs> but I just want to go back to the thing that they say, that, that they've developed several deflection concepts that are accepted today as standard techniques. One of the things you're saying, Robert Perlman, is we haven't really sent uh, anything up to try to deflect on, on a, on a no-stakes basis, you know, an asteroid that's, asteroid that's not going to hit us, that we don't need to be saved from. It might be kind of fun to see if you could change its trajectory somehow. We haven't really done that, right? We haven't. Um, one of the founders of the B612 Foundation, Rusty Schweikert, actually proposed, and he, he was an astronaut who flew on Apollo 9, um, he, he proposed a, a mission to go out and, and test the deflection technique. Uh, we have the technology to do it. Um, we just haven't had the driver or will or funding to do it to date. Um, now, NASA right now is talking about actually moving an asteroid. Um, they, but not for the purpose of saving human lives, uh, but for the purpose of exploration. Uh, President Obama challenged uh, NASA to send astronauts to an asteroid by 2025. And uh, when they went to look for potential asteroids that they could do that with, um, within, a, within a distance that we could keep those astronauts alive and, and maintain a mission, they found there weren't any good asteroids within a um, within a, a, a couple of months to a year uh, away that we could stage this mission. But then they came up with the idea, well, the president didn't say we had to go to an asteroid where it currently exists. Why don't we find a small asteroid and actually move it to Earth, um, or more specifically into lunar orbit around the moon? And that's what they're, that's what they're proposing and, and working right now to do, to robotically capture and tug or push an asteroid, a small asteroid, uh, into lunar orbit and then uh, send astronauts out there to um, then practice mining and taking samples um, and, and also pave the way for commercial mining of the asteroids as well. Um, but that doesn't really, the size of asteroid they're talking about is not really the type that would pose a a threat to 
human life, and the technologies they're developing to, to move that asteroid are not necessarily applicable to moving a, an, an Earth killer. You know, Ben Winters, not having read your uh, third novel, uh, I don't really. Uh, there are sort of things floating around in the air uh, in, in the first two novels about uh, things that might work or things that are not going to work. As you looked at this uh, as a fiction writer, kind of getting ready to tackle this, uh, yeah. how, how hopeful did you become about any particular remedies? Well, unfortunately, I didn't. I did not emerge from all this research feeling super uh, hopeful. Everything I, I got, basically, uh, as as the other guests have been saying, reflects the idea that if if we have decades of lead time, <clears throat> if we see a, a an Earth killer, a civilization killer, uh, decades ahead, and and basically everybody dropped everything to work on it, scientists around the globe, uh, then we'd have a shot. But failing that, if something if something appeared at a much shorter time frame, there isn't much out there right now that has been developed and tested and thought through you know you know i'm sure things have been thought through but i mean actually built and tried out that would make it possible to even try anything um and they are worried if furthermore that if you actually you know do something like try to deflect it or try to blow it up or try micro impacts or try various things the 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 consequences of a failure could be as catastrophic as the asteroid was in the first place you know, so, no, yeah. not super helpful. All right. And Robert Perlman, as you look at all the different uh, projects that are out there, there's something called OSIRIS-REx. There's uh, uh, other um, uh, projects to sort of put some kind of um, uh, outer space observatory out, out there. What, what strikes you as the most practical, promising, and, and doable of, of the various ideas that, that might in one way or another help with this question? Well, the missions that are proposed now, like you mentioned OSIRIS-REx, which is a, a robotic mission that's going to launch in 2016 and then head out to an asteroid and collect some samples and bring them back to Earth by 2023. Um, th- that mission, the B612 Sentinel mission, they each play a part. Um, the OSIRIS-REx mission will help us better understand the composition of asteroids. Um, one of the big challenges is not just size and distance and how far away it is and how much time we have, but understanding once we know that there's an asteroid coming towards us, what it actually is made of. Um, there are different types of asteroids, uh, solid rock-type asteroids, and also these clumps of, of uh, rock and dust and, and ice that are, are held together by gravity but would react completely differently if you were to, say, um, detonate a bomb to one side of it to push it out of the way than would a solid rock. Um, and so we, we're sending these um, these missions out now to learn more about the nature of asteroids themselves and to find them in uh, where they where they're orbiting. Um, I don't know if one advances our ability to protect ourselves more than any other. Um, I think that they're all important to adding to our better understanding of the threat and of the promise that asteroids hold. Because I know we're talking about apocalypse, but the asteroids are also a great source of resources that could potentially be tapped to help us expand out into the solar system, um, potentially making us a multi-planet or at least multi-destination species. So if a a civilization-ending asteroid were to hit Earth, it wouldn't kill out all of humanity. Um, But until we start undertaking actual missions uh, that are specifically designed at, at, at looking at technologies to move asteroids for the sole purpose of deflecting them from our path, um, it's, it's small steps. Um, we really do need a, a demonstrator to 
to show if pushing or pulling an asteroid is the better approach. Um, there's been lots of studies, um, and those can go only so far until you actually put the uh, spacecraft in space and try it. All right. Robert Perlman is an American space historian, founder and editor of Collect Space, a website with news and information about space exploration history. We have to take a break. We're going to come back, talk to Ben Winters a little bit more about the human drama that unfolds in a situation like this. Putting a sail on the asteroid won't work because there's no air in space. Instead, you know what? Let's just move the Earth out of the way. I have to think about this some more. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our intern is Tess Aronson. Greg Hill is our tweet master and appeared in the introduction along with Ray Hardman and President Tucker Ives. For links, stories, and photos of the Faith Middleton Show staff having one last extra virgin olive oil wrestling party before the asteroid hits, go to WNPR.org. And now, back to Colin. I kind of want to see those pictures, and I kind of don't. Uh, all right, so we're talking to Ben Winters right now. His, he's got these novels uh, called The Last Policeman Trilogy, two of which are out right now. They do uh, take place in a scenario where at the beginning there's, I don't know, 14 months or something left before this horrible asteroid hits and kind of ends everything. The second one, uh, the astro- asteroid's getting closer. Now, Ben, one of the things that you really had to uh, think about that was a little bit harder to game out scientifically is just how people would react, um, how, how people would think about their, their lives, their marriages, their families, their jobs what things people would keep on doing and what things people would stop doing, and then what would happen to systems like cell phones and the Internet and stuff like that when people lost interest in doing the things they currently do to keep them going. So I don't talk us through a little bit of that. Well, that's where where the real fun of the writing of this this series has come in, um, is that, you know, I did did try really hard to ground all the science of the asteroid. But then once you get past that and you get to the sort of stark fact – that the world is going to end in a certain amount of time, a certain limited number of months, then you quickly come up to all of these questions about how human beings lead their lives, uh, us as a civilization, and then each of us as an individual. Um, it sort of pushes to the forefront all of the questions that we sort of have in the background every day. You know, um, how seriously am I going to take my job? Um, how much time do I want to spend with my family? How much time do I want to spend by myself? Um, do, you know, do, do I want to, you know, spend my money on, you know, having lavish meals? Or do I want to spend my money on, you know, savings, putting things aside? So all of these questions, when suddenly you are living on this very limited 
timetable, um, it starts to sort of it brings up all this really fascinating, to my mind, really interesting stuff about what it means to be a person in a civilization. You know, so my hero of my of my books is a young guy who has just been promoted to police detective, but he's only been promoted because a bunch of the other police detectives quit uh, as soon as the asteroid became a reality. And so he's got this chance to do his dream job while, meanwhile, all around him, uh, everyone is saying, well, what's the point? Who cares? Uh, and in the first book, he's got, uh, you know, there's this, uh, been a suicide, and he, is, um, he's, he thinks it, it was a murder, and he's going to get to the bottom of it no matter what. Even though the world is full of suicides right now, a lot of people are choosing this way out. And um, even if it does look suspicious, uh, everyone else on the force and everyone else in, in his life is like, well, who cares? What, what's the point of, of spending the time and resources to try to figure this out? And Hank Palos is said to be this kind of great character, and he's also one of those uh, detectives who really takes his lumps a la Philip Marlowe. He's constantly getting beat up and shot, and horrible things happen to him. <laughs> People keep pointing that out to me. I didn't think of that that much when I was writing it. Just, uh, but yes, he does. He uh, he gets he gets shot. He gets stabbed in the eye. He uh, he. Uh, it's his car. He's a car crash. Uh, bad things do happen. It's a tough world out there when the world is ending. Well, you know, the, and the, one of the things that he stands up as, and not, he's not the only one, and people respond in different ways, but he's like this exemplar. He's this kind of Gary Cooper like pillar of rectitude. He's going to he insists on doing his duty, his job. Uh, he's he's going to be the last guy at his post. Um, right. And and but the implication of the tension that's that's created for that is the is the suggestion that people for the most part are going to behave either deplorably or at least fecklessly in this situation. They're either going to do rotten things or they're going to desert their post or they're going to be high most of the time. Uh, right. Or, you know, as as I probably would, they're just going to go to Provence or something. <laughs> Well, here's the thing, though, Colin. If you and that's what's interesting about this, and the people get into where you would just everyone would would be doing their bucket list, right? Go to right. Provence or go to Aruba or whatever. But then, as soon as you start to sort of game that out, if the world is indeed ending, who do you think is going to be flying the plane to yeah. take you to Provence? Who's going to be working at the hotel? Who's going to be making the lavish meal and cleaning up after it? So. It's sort of like once you get into the world where everyone knows the end is coming, all of the things that we think we might do become much more problematic. And actually, the economy starts to crater. And this gets into some of the other research I did about, well, what would happen to the U.S. economy, to the global economy, as soon as there was no reason to save any money? You know, there is no reason to put anything aside. There's no reason to go to work. Um, so suddenly, all of the things that we take for granted, even a year in advance of the actual strike, which is supposed to be the civilization ender, civilization starts to fall apart as soon as psychologically everyone realizes that civilization is going to fall apart. So it becomes this sort of catch-22. And Well, that's the wrong word. It becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy. And what all that Detective Palace says is if everyone would just keep doing what they said they were going to do, if everyone would just keep behaving as they're supposed to behave, then – that we could at least go through life as it's supposed to be until the end instead of letting things fall apart now. And so that's what he stands for, although he wouldn't see it that way. He just sees it as, well, I'm just going to go to work. This is what I'm supposed to do. I'm doing my job. I have to say this book is at times very funny. It doesn't sound like it could possibly be funny, but it is at times very funny, and there's some great comic relief characters, including a dog named Houdini who's around for a a lot of stuff. But And there's just this, my favorite Hank Palace line, and I'm just 
quoting it from memory. I mean, I got it right. Is he said what put it? He says people's inability to deal with this thing is actually worse than this thing itself. That's uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> he, That's right. Well, he's got a colleague, uh, uh, Andreas, who's constantly on the internet before the internet starts to fail, looking at you know reading about conspiracy theories and emailing. He's on chat rooms and he's watching this video, this JPEG, over and over and over again, where someone has figured out how it's all a mistake and it's showing the science of the asteroid sailing harmlessly past. And Pallas knocks over Andreas's coffee, and Andreas says, like, hey, what are you doing? And he's like, he's just watching the coffee, you know, slowly pour off the desk. And Pallas is saying, look, look, we're watching it. We're yelling about it. We're upset about it. And it's still happening. There's nothing we can do about it. So let's just get back to work. But I've already started casting the movie. Tony Shalhoub is going to play uh, Andreas. Um, oh, that's, I could see that. Sure. Yeah, I'm working on this. Real quick, we're running out of time here. We've got a call from Aaron in New Haven. Aaron, uh, I'm sorry to confine you, but we have very little time left. T- tell us what you're up to about this. All right, so it's great to hear that you guys are doing, that you actually wrote a book about this, but um, I was writing a web series with the premise that a asteroid, uh, I guess a civilization busting asteroid comes and um, basically tossing everybody's cookies out the window. Um, and the main storyline carries on when people actually get to outer space, but I have a whole bunch of other spinoff stories about the descent of civilization. The, um, the asteroid actually hit somewhere in the U.S., and the U.S. basically over time. Oh, so you actually, you, you take us through the actual strike itself and, and out on the other side of it, okay? That's a little bit different yeah. for, for what Ben is doing. Well, listen, thanks very much for that call. So, Ben Winters, very quickly, and we have very little time left, but um, I, I found reading this book that it, 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 when I put it down, uh, I would forget that it was just a book, and for 10 seconds, there'd be sort of a perseveration. There'd be this kind of a thought, oh, yeah, well, the world's going to end anyway, so what does it really matter, you know, whether I finish my reps at the gym here or whatever? Uh, and <laughs> so, I mean, what does this do? I mean, do you find yourself, does it happen to you, or do you find yourself thinking very darkly about life? Not, No, I, I don't. I think, to, to the contrary, I find the, the intellectual, the, the challenge of writing the book has been really inspiring, and I, I think on a certain level it's made me sort of, in the cheesy way, kind of cherish the time that I do have and all of that stuff. And I, I think, though, that the reason that you find it so resonant, and thank you, and a lot of other people have said similar things to me, that they have dreams about the asteroid, you know, or that they, they forget, you know, that this isn't real. But I, I think it's because, you know, ultimately we're fascinated by asteroids because we're all going to face our own asteroid one day, right? The very basic metaphorical level on which this book works is that we're all going to die one day. I mean, spoiler alert, right? This life ends. So it, it strikes us this sort of deep chord of like, well, in a way, this situation is real. We, the, we are all on this timetable. We have the perso- perfect way to segue from what you're doing to the end of our song, which is a, our show, which is a great Jill Sobiel song about exactly that. Life. It was a good life. It was a good, good life. I sat a boom, boom, crash, crash underneath the overpass. Burning buildings, fine glass, a good life on the day. I'm Kion Wolf. I figured it out. We tie a lasso around the asteroid and then like a slingshot. Hey, is that nacho cheese? What were we talking about?